back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a savvy topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week a special episode of Fascism in Fiction. This is the mini-series in the podcast where I discuss movies, books, television shows, other pieces of media that deal with fascism or which are beloved by fascists. This movie actually ticks both of those boxes. The movie is Fight Club directed by David Fincher, who also directed Zodiac, Benjamin Button, Gone Girl, and Netflix's House of Cards. The screenplay was written by Jim Oles, and it is based on a novel by Chuck Palahniuk, the famed writer of sort of like aggressive, transgressive literature. The movie stars Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and Helen Bonham Carter. Pulp Fiction is a disjointed, sophomoric satire about modern life that I would argue is a little bit too middlebrow, maybe upper middlebrow, for its audience. It contains massive themes of alienation, masculinity, and finding yourself finding your identity through violence. In terms of its plot, the movie concerns the life of the character played by Norton. This character is unnamed, as he is in the book. In the book, he goes by the name Narrator, the Narrator, so that's what he's going to be in my synopsis. Norton's character works for major auto companies, crunching numbers about vehicle recalls. We don't learn this until midway through the movie, and that's because Norton's character doesn't care about his job. He finds it a soulless, soul-crushing, life-sucking, you know, 90s corporate job. You know, think office space, that kind of thing. The movie starts with him experiencing insomnia, trapped in this middle-class life full of replaceable IKEA furniture, living in a condo in a nameless not particularly interesting urban area, unable to connect to anyone. On a whim, he goes to a support group for men who have had testicular cancer, which resulted in them having their testicles removed. This is essentially played for laughs by the film, and he gets to feel, that is the the main character, gets to feel some emotional release when he's being embraced by a man who has grown breasts and whose testicles have been removed. This character is incidentally played by Meatloaf, the uh, musician. Norton's character experiences, like I said, a sort of catharsis by attending this group. He gets to authentically feel emotions in a way that he doesn't think that he can in his everyday life, alone in his condo or in his office. And so he continues to go to a bunch of other support groups, again, for conditions that he does not have, including sickle cell anemia, a condition generally genetically associated with black people in the United States. At these support groups, he meets another person, a woman named Marla, who also goes to these events and tries to find catharsis rather than support for actual conditions that she has. Specifically, he meets her when she attends the testicular cancer support group. It is heavily implied by the movie that it is ridiculous for a person who presents as a woman to have experienced testicular cancer. The movie is also being very confusing about dealing with masculinity and femininity at this point. It's very clear that the narrator's character experiences himself as being emasculated, and that is why he goes to this support group for men who are, again, narratively emasculated because of the surgical removal of their testicles, because of a medical condition that they have no choice about. The narrator can no longer find catharsis at these support groups because there's another person who knows that he's faking, right? He needs to be believed in order for it to work for him. And so he is once again left without a home, like without a psychological home. Later, on a plane, he meets another main character, the third main character, Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt. 
Tyler Durden dressed like a 12-year-old's idea of what a cool guy would look like. You know, he's got a big red leather jacket and he's ripped. Like he's super buff. He smokes. He drinks. He lives in a dilapidated house. He steals cars. He lives a fast, you know, no-holds-barred lifestyle. The narrator moves in with Tyler after the narrator's home is destroyed in a freak explosion. That night, as these two men bond over their experiences and their perceptions of how society treats them, specifically how it treats men, they start a fight with each other, just for fun, in a parking lot. This starts by Tyler Durden asking the narrator to punch him as hard as he possibly can. They decide that after this fight, they feel more alive than they have ever felt in their lives, right? You know, they, they feel real, they feel raw, they feel alive, they feel like men. And they decide that they want to keep doing this. Narratively, the movie tells us that weeks go by as they continue to do this week after week, and that more and more men join them in these fights, you know, other men from the bar. Eventually, there's a regular crowd who fight in the bar's parking lot, and then finally in the bar's basement for what they call Fight Club. This is around the time that Tyler begins a sexual relationship with Marla, much to the irritation and jealousy of the narrator. This is also the point in the film where you get the famous, like, rules of Fight Club. One, don't talk about Fight Club. Two, don't talk about Fight Club. You know, that kind of thing. We eventually start to learn, us viewers, that there are similar clubs sprouting up all over the area. As hundreds of other dissatisfied men join them in order to find meaning and camaraderie in their lives. We also get a lot of really lovingly shot scenes of men fighting. Just like shirtless men beating each other. The rules of the game are that you can't fight someone to the point of them dying, uh, that you have to prevent that. But other than that, it is supposed to be a real, raw, authentic battle. Fight Club as a community grows until the narrator learns that Tyler, Tyler Durden, has more planned for Fight Club. Namely, he wants it to become the basis of a national terrorist organization. Tyler Durden starts to recruit people from Fight Club to live in their dilapidated house, as part of what he calls Project Mayhem. They're forced to shave their heads, they have to wear, you know, black fatigues and stuff. Tyler and the narrator do not have to do this. Project Mayhem mostly consists of prank-level terrorism, you know, like destroying shopping displays, blowing up corporate statues. Over the course of this section of the movie, Tyler also becomes more overtly violent. He threatens to shoot people. He intentionally causes car accidents. He is just generally causing and inciting violence. Narratively and thematically, Tyler Durden's incense sex with Marla seems to be dovetailing thematically with this. You know, it's violent sex and his violent nature, right? Tyler is just violence incarnate. He's just like a, a molten piece of lava rolling around and like exploding. And, you know, it's just really exciting narratively in the film, right? Like that's what he's supposed to be. Eventually, Meatloaf's character is killed in one of these terrorist acts. This provokes what appears to be a psychological break in the narrator, right? The, the narrator wakes up and he can't find Tyler anymore and he's freaking out because this man has died and he's trying to get people to understand that one of their comrades is dead, you know? But none of these other people seem to be able to shake the fantasy, right? None of these other people seem to be able to wake up from the dream that Tyler has put them under. Because of this, the narrator freaks out and starts to follow a paper trail. A paper trail that leads him all over the country, flying all around and looking and trying to find Tyler Durden, trying to find, you know, evidence of him. 
what he ends up finding instead is evidence that the narrator has all along been Tyler Durden. Dun dun dun, that's the big reveal of the movie. He, that is the narrator, and the audience then learn that Brad Pitt's character, Tyler Durden, has always been a manifestation of the narrator's own mind and his dissatisfaction with his life, right? We even learn that the narrator blew up his own apartment in order to make a break with his pre-existing life, that it's been he, the narrator, who has been having the sexual relationship with Marla, that it's been he, the narrator, who has been making this terrorist organization, that he, the narrator, is the one who founded Fight Club, that he did all of these things, right? That it's just one guy, and it always has been. The narrator freaks out. He wakes up a little bit, and he tries to stop the ultimate plan of Project Mayhem, which he only eventually realizes after a conversation with his alter ego, Tyler Durden, who continues to appear on screen. The ultimate plan of Project Mayhem is to blow up half a dozen buildings that contain credit card company records. Remember, it's the 1990s. Those things are not necessarily on a cloud yet. The idea is to wipe the slate clean and sort of like start over on a societal level, right? It's a sort of jubilee idea. He tries to, you know, solicit the help of other people. He tries to get people to help him stop this. But everywhere he turns, all the men nod at him knowingly because in the world of the movie, Basically, every man who is not, like, at the tippy-top of an organization is in Fight Club, is a part of this vast conspiracy. This includes the police, who even, like, go so far as to say that they're going to cut off the narrator's testicles because he was trying to stop Project Mayhem from happening. This emasculation theme coming back again. Finally, at the conclusion of the film, the narrator is holding himself at gunpoint, uh, switching back and forth between shots with just him in the room and shots where his alter ego is appearing on screen as well. He holds himself at gunpoint, threatening his alter ego, Tyler Durden, that he'll shoot both of them if they don't stop the plan. Tyler Durden does not back down, and the narrator does, in fact, shoot himself. What he does is that he destroys the part of his brain that contained Tyler. So Tyler disappears. The narrator is still standing there, just with like a gaping wound in his head. And then he and Marla stand together, holding hands, and watch these buildings blow up. That's the plot of the movie. All right. So this movie has a reputation, and I think it's a very deserved reputation. The reputation is that fascists and other right-wing sort of male supremacist men like it. They like that this is a movie about young men using violence to get closer to each other. They like that this is a movie about power and the need to feel important in the face of alienation, right? Constant themes of, like, working-class, quote-unquote, slavery, as the movie depicts it, not just in working-class jobs, but in white-collar jobs as well. People like that it has overt themes of male supremacy and the fear of feminization, right? You know, men whose testicles have been removed, men who care about furniture, men who know what the word duvet means, like the movie even gets as granular as that, men who are, quote, raised by women. So this movie is, on a surface level, it is about this. It's about male alienation. This is the kind of wording that comes out of Tyler's mouth all the time when he is talking about the problems that men face, the reasons that they joined Fight Club. The movie also, you know, speaking of fascism, literally does culminate in a national male conspiracy to topple the world via cheeky violence, basically, right? That's their plan. It's like that they're going to stage a series of, like, violent pranks, and then the world will be remade 
and they themselves will be real men now, right? That's the theme of the movie. If there is a better version of an adolescent fascist fantasy, I literally couldn't imagine one. But that, I think, is the point of the movie, at least as I would imagine its creators intended it. When I watched it, I honestly thought it was kind of okay, because the, the adolescent fantasy of the movie is revealed to be a fantasy in it, right? As the narrator realizes that Tyler is his own fantasy, he, he wakes up, you know, from this dream, right? He realizes that this is stupid and, like, childish, and he tries to get other people to emerge from this fantasy themselves, right? We realize that we, the viewer, have been narratively trapped in the same fantasy that he has been. It's ridiculous. It's over the top. It's unreliable. Tyler's stupid, goofy rhetoric is supposed to be stupid and goofy. It's supposed to be enticing for like a 12 or 13-year-old. It's not supposed to be real. And that is the central problem of the movie. Because many viewers, especially including adolescent young men, do not get that part. They really don't like the last half of the movie, which is what redeemed it for me. They really only care about and like the part of the movie where we, the viewer, are completely trapped 100% ensconced in the fascist fantasy. They like Tyler Durden, a character who is supposed to be a caricature. He's supposed to be a stupid, ridiculous fantasy. He is not a real person, right? But they want to be him. They're, they're, they are still trapped in that adolescent fantasy. One of the major criticisms of the movie is that its director and its actors and its writers do this fantasy too well. They make it too enticing they make it too relatable, they make it too interesting, and that they don't pull off the reveal well enough to pull back the veil enough for the audience to really see the problem. They don't really show the violence and danger and, like, horror of there being a vast conspiracy of armed and violent men who are prepared to use violence in order to remake the world in their own image. That's fascism. But the problem is that the movie is too interested, too invested in making sure that you, the audience, are along for the ride at the beginning, that it doesn't shut the ride off at the end, right? You know, you, you can't get out, ultimately. This is the serious problem of the movie. The movie sells its fantasy much too well. Right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please Leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you Thursday.